Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And with all that is transpiring in our community, we want to turn our hearts and our attention towards you, your teachings, your way of life. And wherever we may be across this globe, whether here or Baltimore or in another continent, it is our prayer that your way of living is expanded. This world desperately needs a new way forward. May we in this room be a small microcosm of the movement that you are pushing forward all over the world. May your light shine brightly in the darkest places. May those who are forgotten, destitute, marginalized, feel the warmth of your presence and the redemption of the work of your people. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We're in a series entitled Jesus Economics. If you weren't here last week, I gave a fairly lengthy slash brief introduction, welcome to the paradox, of why economics is important. Our faith about Jesus is not just about an internal personal salvation. We're not so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. If you read carefully the Gospels and you read carefully the history of our faith, Christians, followers of Jesus, took steps to live in a certain way that had actual, very real economic implications, which meant salvation. In fact, salvation probably means saved from poverty, saved from destitution, uh, there's lots of those connotations. We look through the prophets, we look through the Old Testament as well as some of the passages. And today I'd like to continue that teaching based upon what we did last week with a message I'm entitled, I See You, because what Jesus is going to teach in Matthew chapter 6 uh, is going to use a metaphor that some of us may not be very familiar with. And so I'd like to illuminate what that metaphor is and how it illuminates and how it shares and teaches us how we should think about economic structures and living as a follower of Jesus. Just a reminder that we're not going to dig into deep economic theory, and we're not going to have a debate about capitalism versus socialism or any of the other particular ways. We're not cajoling people into giving money to the church. We're doing none of those things. We want to ask simply the question, what is the way of Jesus, and what is the way of Jesus when it comes to economic implications? I'm sure none of you in this room are going to be surprised by the ethic by the principle, by the virtue of being generous to other people. In fact, I think when you consider what does it mean to be a good person uh, from an economic standpoint, it's very, very simple. You just give money. When you see the Salvation Army person during Christmas, you want to give money. When you see the World Vision advertisements of children who just need a sponsor and support, you give money to this and all these different types of things. Um, I have a feeling that many of you understand uh, what generosity is, and that it is also important. And I just realized I have a wrong slide here. So, hold on. I have... <laughs> Sorry, I did this backwards. So I'm going to do this backwards. So I wanted to tell you... <laughs> oh, 
I want to tell you two stories. The first story happened to me many, many years ago. I was down in Southern California visiting uh, for some sort of event, and I was just uh, coming out of a renewed sense of personal spiritual growth. It was one of those moments where I was like, yes, I love Jesus, and I'm singing all the songs, and I have you know, Christian bumper stickers on my car, and I'm just you know, witnessing to everybody, and I'm trying to be a good Christian, all that kind of stuff. And one of the principles that I mentioned there was a generosity. And so I was thinking to myself, how, how do you uh, be generous? How do you be a follower of Jesus when you are living in a world where there's destitution and poverty? And at that particular time, as it is today, homelessness was one of those issues that was talked about frequently. And so I remember feeling convicted and feeling moved by this and feeling like I need to do something about it. So I was down in Southern California. I was getting gas. And a uh, gentleman came forward to me and said, hey, man, and, and gave me a really compelling story. <laughs> I'll give you in a way already. But gave me a really compelling story as to um, the food that he needed for the family, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember feeling so moved by compassion and so moved by I want to be the kind of person that is generous. Um, so I gave him my, the only cash that I had. I didn't carry a lot of money at that time, but I said, please take this. May the Lord bless you um, and do something good with it. You know? and, and at that time, I had all, all sorts of judgmental things in my head, like make sure you don't buy drugs or cigarettes or anything like that. You know, it's, I, I've grown and matured. I've grown and matured over the years. Can you imagine that? So um, anyway, I watched this gentleman um, take my money and immediately turn around and run away from the location where I was around the corner um, in the kind of pace that you can tell that he was getting away. You know what I'm talking about? You, you know that feeling. And immediately, um, I realized that this is what had happened to me. Now, whether or not there is merit in my judgment of the gentleman, okay? Whether or not there's merit in the judgment, how do you think I felt at that particular moment? What, do you, what, do you, what, would you, what would you feel at that moment? Violated? Disappointed? Embarrassed? Naive? I mean, I, yeah, yeah, anger. Like all of these negative emotions, right? Like, I, I was following Jesus. What the heck? Several years later, I heard another story that reminded me of it. I was drawn to the story because I was like, oh, this reminds me of that time way back when I was uh, however many years old. A gentleman came into a local church with a very similar story. My son is terminally ill, and we have spent everything on medical bills. We're at our last end's rope. Uh, we not, we're not quite sure how we're going to make it. And so they out of generosity, went to whatever cubby that they had, pulled out some money, gave it to the gentleman, and said, Lord, bless you, be on your way. Later, somebody else came in from the local church down the street and said, hey, did a guy come in and ask for money? And he said, of course. And did you give him money? Of course we did. And the gentleman said to these church leaders, it was all a scam. He was making it up. It was just completely fraudulent. He was just doing that to take advantage of the goodness and the kindness and the generosity of the people. This story was being recounted in front of a multi-faith community, if I remember this story correctly. And there was a rabbi there that heard the story 
about how this had happened. And instead of the emotions that we all naturally felt, the rabbi began to dance. And he began to celebrate. And he was really joyous and overwhelmed with gratitude. And the Christians are looking at this guy going, what in the world? We just got, you know, congratulations, you just got scanned. And the rabbi said, you're telling me that the boy wasn't terminally ill? That is reason and cause to celebrate. I tell those two stories because in everything, and I do mean everything, there are different ways of seeing the exact same story. And how we see the story and how we see the characters in the story, how we see the context of the story, how we see the functions that led up to the story, how we see them affects everything about what we think, what we value, how we live, and how we act, and how we behave. If you search on the rabbinical sites about charity and what if you give to a scam, you will find a consistent thread through the Jewish thinking and idea that you are always grateful for the opportunity to give, even if it turns out to be a scam. Why? Because you were given the opportunity to be generous. The point is not that your money has very clear calculated Excel spreadsheet results and that if that doesn't happen, then you just get welled up with all these negative emotions. No, the point is don't ever... Let anything get in the way of your soul and your spirit of generosity. And everything when it comes to everything, it really all depends on your perspective. Is this a duck or is it a rabbit? Last week, I shared with you a story about the parable of the prodigal son. And you remember there were two main answers as to why did the prodigal son, the son that had went and spent everything, why did he come back home? And many of us, I included, would say, well, he squandered it. Irresponsibility. That's how we see the story. He was being irresponsible. And by the way, he squandered it with riotous living and prostitutes. Doesn't that, isn't that what the text says? That's actually what the older brother says. It's not actually what the text says. So we, like, scrunch all of these things together. Clearly, it's irresponsibility. Why? Because we come from a context and a culture that views personal responsibility as the main reason why people are poor or impoverished. We have that same idea when it comes to the people that are homeless, etc., etc., etc. We also talked that there was actually a second uh, group of people uh, that story was told with which uh, to the Russian seminarians who had just experienced famine, and they didn't think it was personal responsibility. They thought it was context. There was a severe famine that broke out throughout the country, and that is true too. Both of those stories are equally correct. The gentleman who recounts this story, uh, Mark Allen Powell, said, I told this story a third time in Tanzania. Exact same question, exact same inquiry. Why did the prodigal son return home? Why was he destitute? Why did he not have enough money? Do you want to guess what the Tanzanian said? The reason is not personal responsibility or irresponsibility. The reason is not because of the famine. The reason is because nobody in the community helped him. It was an absence of communal care. And sure enough, when you look closely at the text, verse 16, he would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. Your perspective, how you see and how you understand, affects everything. How we interpret, how we believe, what we actually think is true on the ground. 
And today what I'd like to do is take a look at Matthew chapter 6 because Jesus is going to use this analogy of seeing and viewing as an analogy for how we should consider all the ways in which economic realities play out. And again, we're not going to dig into how much should you give and what is the right percentage of a good Christian. What we want to do is step back into the ethics of Jesus and find out what are the driving motivations under the way Jesus is asking his followers to live and behave. And then together as a community, we can figure out, individually and communally, we can figure out what does that mean economically. So let's start in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. The analogy that's coming is already contextualized within the concept of an economic system or an economic value, how you govern your own personal finances. Very quickly, this phrase, rust consuming, is a difficult, all these words are sometimes difficult and challenging. If you take a look at the original Greek behind it, there's a sense that the consuming, where moth and consuming destroy. So instead of just rust, very much passive, moth and rust destroyed it. There's also possibly an implication. Don't store it for your treasures on earth, where moth, which is a thing that happens to you, and consumption, which is the thing that you do yourself. So there's both of those things happening in this text. Don't store for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth will destroy, but where your active consuming will also destroy it. Your attention to all of these material possessions. This is the same uh, verse that we talked about from the Gospel of Luke last week. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And immediately after this, he launches into a parable-esque type of teaching that includes some images and pictures that are going to be a little bit foreign to us. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Notice the phraseology, I. This is where the title of the sermon is coming from. I see you. Something about vision, seeing, looking is tied directly to the verses that we just read about storing up treasures and how we behave economically. And then he goes on. It just continues. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. And sandwiching all of these teachings is this concept or our relationship with material possessions and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. You just simply cannot do it. So the question is, what is this deal about the eye? And what fundamental underlying teachings is it giving us? The first is to understand that essentially the question that is being asked to all of Jesus' followers is this. What kind of eye do you have? What kind of eye do you have? How do you actually view and see the world around you? How do you actually view and see the economic systems around you? The economic results around you? Treasures around you? Possessions? How do you actually view and see them? For those of you who know, this actually comes from the word yere, which, which is a common phrase, Jehovah Jireh. We've, for those of you who've been around Spark, you know that Jehovah is not a word. It's a made-up word. But anyway, it's the idea that, sorry, I just dropped that bomb in there. But um, 
the, the Lord actually sees. The Lord will see. It comes from this idea that provision, the idea that God will provide, is literally the phrase, God will see you. So provision and material possessions, the material gain that God will provide, food, shelter, clothing, is this phrase, God will see you. And this seeing, this idea of seeing somebody, is deeply tied to somebody actually taking care of and being generous with another person. Proverbs 22.9, He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. That word generous is actually the phrase, a good eye. Somebody who has a good eye is going to be blessed. Why? The blessing comes from giving out of the excess of what I have to somebody who doesn't have. The Hebrew, uh, one Hebrew translation actually translates it, a bountiful eye. On the converse, Proverbs 23, 6 says, Do not eat the food of a stingy man. Do not crave his delicacies, for he is the kind of man who is always thinking about the cost. Somebody who is stingy. Does anybody want to guess what that word stingy might actually mean? Not a good eye, but a, a bad eye. And some translations actually have an evil eye. When Jesus invokes the image of eye, it's a metaphor for how you see the world. And in the biblical context, if you see with a good eye, in fact, it literally kind of means your vision is good, you can see clearly, then you are obviously going to be generous. I see very clearly the plight of my fellow human being. I see very clearly their humanity. I see very clearly their situation and their context. Of course, because I see clearly, I will be generous. I'm not sure I see it. I'm really, do you, are you really that poor? I mean, I, aren't you responsible? I mean, you must have made a whole bunch of bad decisions. I, I mean, you clearly respond. I mean, you bought beer for crying out loud. I can't believe it. I mean, look at yourself. By not seeing your neighbor clearly, you are stingy and frugal. A good eye is equal to generosity. A bad eye is equal to stinginess. Jesus later on in this gospel of Matthew tells a couple parables about somebody who saw something. And when they saw something, they were overwhelmingly generous. Does anybody remember the parable of a man who found a treasure hidden in a field? Uh, when he found and hid it, he, he went with joy, sold everything that he had, and he went and bought that field. Now to somebody else, they look at that field and like, what are you doing? That field? You sold your riches and your wealth and everything for that field? Yes, because this gentleman in this parable saw very clearly the value in that field. Jesus tells another parable about a pearl of great price. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. When you see something of great value, you are generous and you are lavish. So the question for the Economics of Jesus series is not, how much are you giving? The question is, how do you see? How do you actually see your fellow human being? And do you actually see them? 
sometimes we were having this conversation about why some people sometimes don't even want to look at the news, don't want to actually go down to places of injustice, don't want to be there. Why? Because once they see it, they're immediately moved to a responsibility. Seeing is immediately spiritually directly tied to the rest of our lives and our behavior. Once you see, you cannot unsee. My friends, I believe part of this teaching, again, staying away from the numbers, to live in this world economically is to gain for ourselves a really good eye. Part of the reason why Darren and I went down to Clint, Texas, is so that we could see and experience. Part of the reason why we read the articles is so we can see and understand. Part of the reason why we are active and we invite We want to see. That is the fundamental underlying ethic of Jesus that leads then to generosity and the economics of how we live. The converse, therefore, is this. A bad eye is to not see your neighbor clearly. If you are stingy, if you hoard, if you're greedy, if you save it up just for yourselves, if you're not generous to somebody who is in need, according to the scriptures, you just simply do not see very clearly. So, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If you see, then everything about who you are will be full of this light of generosity and giving and kindness and compassion and mercy to the world around you. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And this is the point The first step in understanding how we are to live economically in this world is to first see clearly and to notice thoughtfully, to understand deeply, and to look in your neighbor's eye and to look in your brother and sister's eye and to say, I see you. I know you. I understand. And when you do that, then your entire body will be full of light. You will have to act. You will have to be generous. You will have to take what God has given to you and live into this world in a way that ensures that everybody in this community is fully seen and understood. That's how this works. And that's how we get to be generous and lavish. I, I have a feeling, and again, this is part of the preface from last week, that we often skip over this particular piece and we just get to how much should you be giving. And the reason why many of us are so dissatisfied with that answer is because you're just trying to get into my pocketbook. The entire economic system that I see of Jesus is he's first trying to get into your heart. How do you actually relate to your fellow human being? And can you take the relationship that you have with your fellow human being, your fellow brother and sister, start there. In fact, make that the only and most important thing. Because honestly, the numbers and the money, that's just a natural outplay of the most important thing is to see your neighbor clearly. To say, I see you. I know you. You and I are together. I understand. First John chapter 3. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good goods? and sees a brother or sister in need, and yet refuses to help. How is that possible? How is it possible 
to see and not help. The only explanation, according to this metaphor, is that you have a bad eye. That's what it means. You're stingy. You're not generous. You're just not seen. And in fact, we have a saying in English, you will turn a blind eye. And once I do that, well, guess what? I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have to be generous. I don't have to give. I don't have to live that way because I just don't see it. I just ignore it. The flip side of this story, because according to some scholars, there's a huge contingent of the Jesus movement that is of the wealthy and upper class. If you read the Gospels carefully, you have a lot of people there who are of means, and a lot of these teachings go to them. But the flip side of this exact same teaching is this. If you are one of those people of whom the world has forgotten, and whether through socio-political economic structures, you have not been seen, and you are left barely hanging on, and you're not quite sure where you're going to get your next paycheck, and you're just trying to put food on the table, and you feel like there's this massive amount of wealth around you, and nobody sees you and nobody cares, the flip side of this teaching is God sees and God cares. And he's calling those of us with means to also see you in care. Psalm 9, verse 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the poor perish forever. Psalm 12, 5. Because the poor are despoiled, because the needy groan, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will place them in the safety for which they long. Proverbs 22, 22. Do not rob the poor because they are poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord pleads their cause and despoils of life those who despoil them. In James chapter 2. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be the heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? The message is twofold. For those of you who are rich and wealthy and of means... Jesus is calling us to consider what kind of eye do we have? What kind of vision do we have of this world? For those of us who have been destitute and just barely making it, you are seen. The message to you is that you are seen. God looks you in the face, holds you up, esteems you. (laughs) Blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You are seen. The Jesus economic system that I'm proposing is that we don't really have to tackle too much about materialism and greed and pride and hoarding. I mean, sure, we could talk about all of those things. But I think the proposal in this teaching is to ask us to actually see a little bit more clearly, to just open our eyes and not to diminish our moral insufficiency as if we are bad people. Maybe the issue is we have just broken off our connection and our relationship with our fellow human being. And maybe we have not connected our lives with their lives. And I'm talking about our lives and their lives in this room, our lives and their lives in this city, our lives and their lives in this nation and in the world. We have forgotten to reconnect and to see clearly the pain and the suffering of those around us, and especially in a globalized economy. We have failed to see our collective interdependency, that those 
in this world that we may call poor, we need them, their resources, their humanity, their dignity. There is a mutuality in what we get here. And oftentimes we only see them as poor. Or in fact, we put names and labels on them so that we don't have to see the full picture. We have failed to see our ecological responsibility. We're going to get to this in a couple of weeks when we talk about a green new covenant and climate change and what does the way of Jesus have to do with that. I think it has huge implications. Because if we could start living this particular way, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, so here's a preview, you know, um, sneak peek at what's coming. How we live in the wealthy part of the world has deep implications for how people are suffering from climate change in other parts of the world. The question is not, is that moral and is that right? And, you know, how much fossil fuels and all that kind of stuff. The question for us as Jesus followers is, will we see that? Will we see them? Will we see their plight? Will we see their suffering? It is a failure to see that every single human being on the face of this planet is the image and the likeness of God, just like we are. When I look in their eyes... Oftentimes, the first thing that we see is a class, where they stand on the social stratosphere. Can we see them as images of the divine? And can we see ourselves in them? And this goes all ways, the rich and the poor and everybody in between. And according to Jesus, in his particular way, can we see our Savior in them? Can we see that when we've done it to the least of these, as Jesus has taught us, we have done it unto him? There is an economic theory, actually, that floats around, for those of you who have studied this, called the Matthew effect. The Matthew effect comes from this verse. It was arisen by some economists who were studying and knew a little bit about this passage. And the general idea is that abundance gives you an advantage. Uh, if you want to play in the stock market, you can't play in the stock market and, you know, make money unless you have money. And so the Matthew effect is, for to all those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And so economists have actually looked at this phrase and they've coined a term called the Matthew effect, the abundance advantage. And if you don't have, then because of our particular system, the effect is going to mean that you will have less and less and less. And this is certainly played out in a particular way, where if you have means, if you have just a little bit of means, then you can slowly gain, grow that wealth. Generationally, you can grow that wealth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Many of you know uh, much about this. Um, my friends, I would like to propose a different Matthew effect that I think is even more important for Jesus' followers. This might be a great economic theory to describe what actually happens in a capitalistic society, but I'm going to actually propose that Matthew chapter 6 is probably a better way of thinking about the Matthew effect. And here's the effect. What would actually happen to our economic systems and the way in which we govern our money, to the way in which we see growth and capital and gain and all of that stuff, if we actually saw one another clearly? If we actually looked carefully at our fellow human beings and saw them the way that God sees them, if we were to stare in their eyes and to fully embrace their full humanity and ask some serious questions as to whether or not our economic systems are actually providing for them the kind of life that 
we have ourselves and vice versa? What if you could be seen? And conversely, to not be seen could have very horrible detrimental economic effects. That's my proposal for a different kind of Matthew effect, to see each other clearly. Uh, this is amazing. Um, I was, this was not in the original notes, so this is free for you guys. Um, I was driving back from church this morning, and I was listening to this podcast, Know Your Enemy, uh, and, and this woman, um, Dia Khan, uh, is just an incredible documentary filmmaker where she goes into places of hate, and she asks some questions like, how did they get there? And you start to realize that the process by uh, recruiting people into white supremacy or even into jihad is not as clear and simple as we might think it is. So I'm listening to this on the way down. I know I'm going to give this message, and so I hope this works. But listen to what she says about the process by which people get drawn in and recruited, and I hope I have it in the right place. People who are made to feel like they're not good enough, and especially on the jihadi side of it, you know, all of the men that I spoke to consistently fell between all the sides. You know, they would say that I was never Pakistani enough or Muslim enough. When I'm in England, I'm Paki. And when I go to Pakistan, they're like, oh, you're British? And they're calling me British. So I really feel like I belong on an aeroplane, just somewhere just in, between, hovering in between, just hovering. That's where I belong. Like, that's the middle ground. And so what am I, you know? And who wants to live with the feeling of never being good enough, no matter what you do? And one of the men even says, he's like, look, I had the white girlfriend. I spoke English perfectly. You know, I was, you know, doing well in school and I was doing this, 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 this. I grew up in a white working class community. I had no interest in Islam whatsoever. I hated being brown. I had my white girlfriends and then middle class parents saying, oh, but you'll have mongrel children. Still, I'm just a Paki. I mean, Paki is like a derogatory term for Pakistani people. I know it well. You know it well. From my childhood. Unfortunately, me too. Yeah. Uh, the kids in Toronto didn't understand the nuance between being Pakistani and being Sri Lankan. So I was just a Paki. My dad was a taxi driver. My house smelled like curry. Same thing. Yeah. Even though my parents always opened the windows and we cooked and lit <laughs> candles because they didn't want the house to smell, to like, smell curry. like curry. They just assumed the house smelled like curry. Yeah. You couldn't win. And that's the thing. Feeling like you will never win. And then you have this charismatic, brilliant recruiter that comes along. Al-Qur'anu dasturuna, the Qur'an is our constitution. Wal-jihadu tariquna, the jihad is our way. And to die, to seek death or martyrdom in the path of Allah is our highest ambition or our goal. Abu Mantasir. Yeah. And one of the men even says it in the film. He said, you know, suddenly somebody puts their arm around you and says, you're okay. They were offering something which, you know, I, you know, I never had before, a family, understanding, belonging. This is where the journey starts. And not only are you okay, but you can be a part of this thing, this brotherhood. I care about you. All these other people care about you. And you can do something that is great. You can do something that actually really matters. This man was famous. Famous to the point he was infamous. I had to meet this Abu Muntasir. And, and I made it my, my mission to track him down. It's incredibly powerful for somebody who feels powerless to suddenly be seen and to suddenly feel like they're accepted, not just tolerated on the bus by somebody who clutches their purse closer to them because a brown guy walked on the bus, yeah. but truly, truly accepted. And the only thing 
that is required of you is that you be a Muslim. And that's it. doesn't matter if you're brown, black, red, white, man, woman. doesn't matter. Just as long as you're a Muslim, that's enough. The only thing that I would add very respectfully, I recognize that this is a complicated subject and topic, but I was listening to this and just feeling like all the dashboard lights on, on the lights on my dashboard were going off about the implications of not seeing each other clearly. The only thing that I would add respectfully is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you don't care what somebody's religion is. You see them because they are in the image and likeness of God. She goes on to say this a much longer clip. I mean, a lot of these people, because they look at the world in such a black and white way, you know, they look at either this, a kind of righteous path of trying to change the world versus being a consumer. And a lot of people don't want to be just a consumer. That thing is never satisfied. It's never enough. The entire podcast, of course, is worth listening to. But this is, in my mind, an amazing example of what can happen if we were to truly see one another clearly, to accept and to believe that you are created in the image and likeness of God, and how that would change the calculus in our minds of all the people. Now, we're a beautiful, small old church. Imagine if this was happening at our highest levels of government, where we actually saw every single citizen, every single immigrant, every single international, every single person, regardless of color, race, gender, sex, if we saw them clearly, how that would change the economic calculus. So my friends, I'm proposing to you that the Matthew effect is to see clearly and to have a good eye. This is the start of how we consider how we live out in this world. I'm going to ask Junior to come forward with the rest of the team and uh, we'll sing a song um, in response and we'll shift into communion. A time where we take the bread and the juice to commemorate this sacrament is to commemorate a God who has not only just seen us so clearly, but has come down to see it firsthand, to experience the fullness of all of our economic realities firsthand. And I want to be clear again that some of the messages within Jesus are for the wealthy, but much of the teaching is also for the poor. And wherever you are on this economic spectrum, I just want you to know God sees you. And I pray that we are a kind of community that strives hard to see one another fully and completely with all of that humanity, all of that image, just like God sees all of you. That's what we strive to do. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we sing, you are invited to the table, all of you, because you are a precious child of God, to trust in this way of seeing the fullness of humanity with the really, really, really good eye. Let's sing together. Please stand for a benediction if you can. You are invited. May God grant you the wisdom to see with a good eye 
and the comfort and joy of knowing that you are fully seen. Amen.